We turn this morning in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 to 22. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 to 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 to 22, the author, picking up from the point he made in verse 13, namely that the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all died in faith, not having received the things promised, now gives a snapshot of the faith of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph in the face of death. And in the most remarkable manner, the thing that stands out about these men, as suggested by our text, is the evident sense of peace and poise, the calm and confident faith they exhibited as they approached death. And yet how many on their deathbeds face death with a sense of horror and dread. Suggested by our text is that as they neared death, these patriarchs steadfastly focused on God. Rather than pining in self-pity, harping on the good old days, they looked into the future with blissful assurance. And undoubtedly, we can affirm that even as their faith enabled them to live victoriously, so their faith enabled them to die victoriously. You see, and this is not mere pious cliche, it is only faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in his finished work, that can equip us to face death with such restful peace and assurance. That is a fact. And a sobering truth you and I should accustom our minds to is the reality of death, the fact that one of these days, barring the coming of our Lord Jesus, we are going to die. Indeed, earlier in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, the author categorically stated, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And we're not talking here about a morbid preoccupation with the thought of death. What we are talking about is a wise and necessary reminder to ourselves that we're destined for eternity. And that all things being equal, we are at some point or another going to transition into our destinations by way of death. It's good for us to think of that from time to time. 
One of the things that we notice about these patriarchs as they near death, as I said earlier, was the calm, the confidence they exhibited. They were focused on God, as we said. And all that mattered there in those final hours or those final days or years was the things of God. They were focused on God. And let me say here, that really is what is going to matter at the end of our lives. It's not what we have garnered. It's not what we have accomplished. However impressive, it is not our wealth. It is not our status in life, but our relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God for those of us who are in Christ through faith and trust in his atoning work on the cross for us. The thought of death need not scare us. Again, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15 because he says there that the express purpose for which our Lord Jesus came into this world, the purpose for his incarnation, the purpose for his dying on the cross was this, to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And that's true, so as was true of these three men we'll be considering this morning, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Death need not hold any terror for us as Christians. We, like these men, in fact, we have a greater reason. We have greater basis for confidence, knowing, as the Apostle Paul tells us, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Second Corinthians 5. And verse 8. So we begin this morning with the patriarch Isaac and his exercise of faith. Verse 20, we read, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Let's talk about the activity of blessing in the Old Testament. I think it's very important we begin there in the Old Testament. Blessing someone involved far more than praying or wishing good upon that person. It involved far more than praying for the good of another than wishing the good of another. Particularly with respect to the patriarchs, their invocation of blessings often involved a prophetic dimension. Their words of blessing often carried with them divine confirmation and fulfillment. And that is why as you read the accounts of Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau in Genesis 27, 27 through 29, as well as 39 and 40. And of Jacob blessing Joseph's two sons, Genesis 48, 16 through 20. You'll notice that each of these patriarchs prophetically predicts what will happen to this and that son. Genesis 27, 39 and 40. Genesis 48 and verse 19. Now it's very important you know this, but it's worth repeating. And there's a reason why I took time out to mention all that. Because today, there are Christians who use passages like these to formulate a teaching centering on the idea that by faith, one can actually decree and declare blessings upon the life of another. Speak positively into the life of another or speak blessings over another with the expectation that such blessings 
oftentimes material in nature will most certainly follow. And to buttress their argument, they'll appeal, for example, to Job chapter 22, verse 28, which says, You will decree, that is, decide on a matter, and it will be established for you. Now, friends, let me say here that any idea that you and I can, by some mystical power, declare and decree blessing upon another or speak blessing into the life of another in the most definitive and authoritative way, as did these patriarchs, is misguided. There's nowhere in Scripture where you and I, as Christians, have this authority from God, this enabling power from God, whereby we can actually speak blessings into the life of another, and those blessings that we pronounce become actualized in reality. There's nowhere in scripture you'll find that. The point is God endowed these men with special prophetic ability, endowed them with prophetic insight such that as they invoke blessings on their children or on their grandchildren, they could make accurate statements regarding their destinies as well as the destinies of generations to come. These men were actually prophets. In fact, let me just say here as an aside, many times we think or assume that prophetism began with Moses. And that is not entirely true because when you go to Genesis 20, you know the account with Abraham and Abimelech. When Abimelech was warned by God not to touch Sarah's, um, Abraham's wife, Sarah. You remember what God said to him in Genesis 20? He says, go to Abraham and he will pray for you. Why? Because he's a prophet. He's a prophet. As well, Joseph, you remember when he encountered his brothers and he says, don't you know that such a man as I can divine? These men had special insight, special prophetic insight, whereby as they prayed for their children, as they pronounced blessings on their children, those blessings become, or became rather, reality. Why? Because of the prophetic dimension of their blessings. You and I do not have such enabling power. Now, with regard to Isaac invoking blessing on Jacob and Esau, you know the story. According to Genesis chapter 27, Jacob and Esau were twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was the older of the two twins. And as the account in Genesis 27 goes, Isaac being very old, in fact at this time he was way past 100 years of age. He summoned Isaac to go hunting to find game and he was to prepare for him a meal so that he could enjoy it, that is, Isaac could enjoy it, and so bless him before he dies. Keep in mind that according to Genesis chapter 25, verse 28, whereas Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. 
These two parents, Isaac and Rebecca, had their pet, their favorite. For Rebecca, it was Jacob. For Isaac, it was Esau. And against that backdrop enters Rebecca. According to Genesis chapter 27, 5 through 17, having listened to Isaac instructing Esau to go and find game, to go and get this wild animal to make venison, to make some soup, whatever, for him so that he might enjoy it, go and find delicious food, prepare delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before I die. Rebecca, having listened and heard this plan of Isaac, relays this to Jacob and sends him to fetch two young goats from the flock. She wanted to prepare this meal for Isaac, but she wanted Jacob to go and give him so that Jacob might receive this blessing. That was her plan. Now, why did she do this? Well, as we said, first of all, Jacob was her pet child. Jacob was her favorite. And she wanted, no doubt, the best for him. But there may have been another reason. And in fact, I submit to you, there was another reason besides Jacob being her favorite child. You see, when she was pregnant with the two boys, according to Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 and 23, here's what the word of God says. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, this is what the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So apparently what was happening was this. She listens, she hears this grandiose plan that Isaac has for his son, his favorite son. And of course, she said, presumably, no, 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 no way. No way am I going to let this happen. God made a promise to me. I went to God in prayer. God made a promise to me concerning these two boys. And based on what I know, based on what God suggested to me, the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob is therefore the one to have the blessing. You could imagine her calling to Jacob, Come, Jakey, come, my son. Do as mommy tells you. Mommy's got to look out for you. So she has Jacob disguised as Esau. She prepares the food for his dad so that his dad may bless him as he had promised. The plan worked. The plan worked because when Jacob went to Isaac with the food, Isaac, after some misgivings as to whether it was in fact Esau, eventually concluded Okay, this is Jacob. And what did he do? He blessed him, verses 20 through 29. And what do you know? The word of God suggests here that no sooner had Jacob finished blessing Esau. 
Then appeared, you know who, Jacob. Isaac was startled. Isaac was at his wit's end. In fact, Genesis 27 and verse 33 says this, Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. He was frantic. Jacob was out of his wits. He was startled. He was stunned. And I dare say he was troubled. And if you ask the question, why was Isaac so troubled when he realized that it was not Esau, but Jacob, whom he had blessed? And here are the reasons. You see, because not only was it that Esau was his favorite son, but Esau was his firstborn. And based on the custom of that day, based on the culture of that day, the firstborn had the right to what was called the birthright blessing. You know the rest of the account. Despite Esau's crying and weeping and wailing. Oh dad, please, don't you have a blessing for me? Please, please. Isaac would not. Isaac would not revoke the blessing. Isaac would not take the blessing from Jacob and revert it to Esau. The question is, we have to answer now, based on what our text says, we have to ask this question. In what way did Jacob exhibit faith in his invocation of blessings on Jacob and Esau? Again, the key is Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23, the fact that God's decree was that the elder, that is Esau, would serve the younger Jacob, which of course means this, that even though humanly speaking, you see, even though humanly speaking, Jacob cheated, wormed his way into the blessing in the providence of God, in the plan of God, in the purpose of God, Jacob was to have the blessing. No, it did not excuse Jacob and Rebekah for what they did. But here's the point. In the sovereign plan and providence of God, that was precisely how things were to work. You see, the fact that Isaac, and here's how his faith, is celebrated at this point. You see, the fact that Isaac would not revoke the blessing Jacob of Jacob and reverted to Esau attests to his faith. His faith in what? His faith in the sovereign purpose and providence of God. Jacob at this point recognized, yes, this is God's doing. He recognized somehow it was made clear to him that this is a providential act of God. This was indeed God's will and God's purpose. You say, how do we know that? Look at verse 33. Notice his response when he realized that it was not Esau whom he had blessed. He says there in verse 33 of Genesis 27, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Listen to what he says. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Jacob made no attempt, notice Jacob did not make the slightest attempt 
to override the will and purpose and providence of God. In fact, when Esau further pleaded for blessing, verses 37, 39, and 40, here's what Isaac said. Very much in line with God's will, with God's purpose, with God's providence, Isaac answered and he said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Then he says in verse 39, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven and I, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Jacob, by faith, rested in the plan and purpose and providence of God. He did not make any attempt whatsoever to revert the blessing to Esau, to revoke the blessing from Jacob and to revert it to Esau. The point then is this, that though Esau, listen, though Esau was his favorite son, and though Esau, conventionally speaking, would have had the right to the birthright, Jacob recognized that in the providence of God, things should be what? Reversed. And against popular notion, against popular idea, even against personal feeling, he surrendered to the will and purpose of God. Here's our first point. True faith in God surrenders, resigns itself to the will and purpose of God, even when that will runs counter to our feelings, to our prejudices, and our expectations. True faith in God resigns to the will and purpose and providence of God. That's our first point. My friend, that's what faith is all about. It's all about surrendering to God's will, even when that will, humanly speaking, is unconventional. And when it goes against the grain of our feelings, our expectations, our prejudices. Well, secondly, we look at Jacob and his exercise of faith. And here's what the Word of God says. This event is found in Genesis 48. Here's what the Word of God says. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now Joseph, we're told in Genesis 48, hears that his father Jacob, now a very old man, all of 147 years of age, is ill. That's an old man. So he takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him to visit his father. At the moment, Isaac would bless these two boys. So the record tells us, Joseph in verse 13, took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, Israel towards his left hand, Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. Question, why did Joseph do that? Why did Joseph place them in that specific order? Again, what was Joseph doing? The popular custom of the day was to accord the prime blessing, the position of honor, to the firstborn. The firstborn was who? Manasseh. 
I tell you earlier, I told you earlier, that these patriarchs had prophetic insight. Well, what do you know? What did Jacob do? What was Jacob's response? Notice Genesis 48 verse 14, his counteraction. Jacob, we are told, in Genesis 48 and verse 14, the Bible says, And Israel stretched out his right hand, laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. This man was blind, 147 years old. Contrary to what one would expect, he reverses the position in which Joseph put them. And he blesses the younger, he puts the younger at the position of prime honor on his right hand. According to verse 17, as he proceeded to bless the boys, reversing the order in which Joseph had placed them before him, we read, he, that is Joseph, took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's hand to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn, but your right hand, put your right hand on his head. Joseph was upset. Verse 19. Listen to the calm, confident declaration of his father. His father refused, but his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Verse 20 concludes as follows. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now the question is, how do we explain Jacob's ignoring the birth order of Manasseh and Ephraim? giving the preeminent position to the younger, that is Ephraim. As we said earlier, the patriarchs, as they blessed their children, they were doing far more than simply declaring good concerning them. These men, as we said earlier, were prophets. There was a prophetic dimension to their blessing. And with this in mind, the assumption, the clear, logical assumption, is that somehow God, prophetically, God had revealed it to Jacob that the younger should receive the prime blessing. There's no other way around that. As such, Jacob, how was Jacob exercising faith in God? It, is, it was by this, by this insight he had, by faith, he obeyed God, following what he understood to be God's leading and God's directive. God was leading him to do that. How do we know that? Listen to his authoritative, definitive declaration concerning the great nations that will proceed from Ephraim. Like Isaac, who in the providence and plan of God, blessed his younger son. Jacob, above Esau, his older son. So Jacob blessed Ephraim above his older brother Manasseh. And in fact, right throughout Genesis, you'll find God reversing this order, giving preference to the younger over the older. Go back to the story of Cain and Abel. We know, of course, Cain followed his own way, rejected God's way. 
But notice, who honored God there? Who, with whom was God pleased? The younger brother. Abel. He bypassed Ishmael and he decided to go with Isaac. Ishmael shall not be your heir. And now we see in the case of Ephraim and Manasseh, we see in the case of Jacob and Esau, God reverses popular expectation and he places the honor, the preference on the younger. The question is, why does God choose this pattern? Why does God go against conventions of the day and God chose, God favored the younger over the elder? The simple answer, my friends, is this. God does that. He did that. So as to demonstrate his choice that all who will be blessed, all who will receive favor from him, such favors, such blessings come not from natural descent or what one construes to be one's rights or one's deservedness, but that his choices are based solely on his sovereign will, his sovereign purposes. And that is grace. If you ask the question, what is grace? Grace is that which is freely given without regard to merit or deservingness. And that is why Paul sees this on this story, this account in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 16, concerning these two boys, Esau and Jacob, to make a point, to prove a point about God's saving grace. Here's what he says regarding Jacob and Esau. Romans chapter 9, 11 through 16, he says, Though they were not yet born... And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let me remind us this morning that, you see, when it comes to our salvation in Jesus Christ, it, is all, it was all of God's sovereign grace. God in grace, my friends, the word of God tells us, the word of God teaches that even before we were born, indeed from the very foundation of eternity, chose us in Christ. We have been sovereignly elected by the grace of God. It has nothing to do with how good we were. It has nothing to do with how deserving we were. It had to do everything with God's grace and God's grace alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, there's an interesting statement at the end of verse 21 regarding Jacob. We're told here that when he was dying, as he blessed each of the two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, what was he doing? He was bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Think for a moment. This man was 147 years old. This man 
was aged. We can imagine perhaps his body was racked with pain. He was weak. And yet even as he blessed these boys, what is he doing? He props himself up in the bed and he has his staff and he's leaning on it, worshipping. It's easy to gloss over this and say, well, what's the big deal? Let me tell you, that's not there by accident. If you study the history of Jacob, you see, Jacob, you'll realize after he left home, because he had to run from home, from Esau, because of Esau's anger. And if you notice all along, Jacob, as it were, was operating, as we would say today, according to the flesh. He was actually doing his own thing at times, running, 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 running. Never really settling in terms of his faith in God. But something happened one day. In fact, one night, Genesis chapter 32, the angel of the Lord met him. You know, remember that incident? And he wrestled with this man. He wrestled with this man. He asked, what is your name? The the angel of the Lord said to him, why are you asking my name? And the Bible tells us that he blessed him there. But the angel of the Lord, God did something that night. Word of God says God touched him (laughs) at the hollow of his hip. And from that day, Jacob walked with a limp. Listen to what he says in Genesis 32 verse 10. He says, with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. This staff was emblematic of his coming to that place of weakness of dependence, of trust. And even as he was there on his dying bed, worshipping on that staff, it was suggesting that God had taken him through such experiences whereby he had come to have total dependence on God. In fact, that staff was the only material thing he had in his possession. And that staff he leaned on was emblematic of his dependence on God. Can I make an application here this morning? Again, how old was Isaac? He was 147 years old. And what was he doing? He propped himself up in the bed. And even as he was blessing these boys, what was he doing? He was worshiping God. You know, here's a point. Where there's real faith in God, where there's true love for God, nothing will stop us from what we want to do, particularly when it comes to worshiping God. In his weakness, utter weakness, About to die, he forces himself on his staff, leaning and worshiping God. What will stop us from... I ask myself the the question, what will stop you from worshiping God? What will stop me from worshiping God? The discouragements of life, you know, many, many times there are people who walk with God for years. They become old. What happens? They become discouraged. They become disgruntled. Their faith in God wanes. And oh, that God would give us such buoyancy that even in the hour of death, we would be focused on him. We would still maintain and retain our fervency for him. 
Thirdly and finally, we consider Joseph and his exercise of faith. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, you know the story of Joseph. We understand from Genesis, the narrative, I think it begins somewhere from 30, 35, thereabouts, I'm not certain, but somewhere in the 30s, the Joseph narrative, all the way to chapter 50. And you know how he ended up in Egypt was this, that his brothers, out of envy, cast him in a pit. And some Midianites came along and took him out of the pit. And what did they do with him? They sold him to the Egyptians. They sold him, the word of God tells us in Genesis 37-36, to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's God. And over time, fast forward, Joseph, in the providence of God, climbs the ranks in Egypt to the point where he becomes prime minister of Egypt, a powerful and influential leader next to Pharaoh in authority. He, that's how big Joseph had become. And being prime minister, being such powerful leader in Egypt, Joseph had around him wealth, he had affluence, he had his heart's desire in terms of everything conceivable that was material, everything in terms of prestige, honor. In fact, listen, he would have ended up in Egypt when he was around 17 years of age. He died in Egypt at 110 years of age, which means this. It meant that he spent the better part of his life in Egypt. He had become acclimatized and acculturated to the ways of Egypt. He lived in opulence. He lived in affluence, wealth, luxury, pomp, you name it. And yet, here was the interesting thing about Joseph that tells us something about his spiritual character. At the end of his life, says the writer of Hebrews, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, the Greek verb translated made mention literally means to remember. And the idea here is this, that as he neared death, Joseph remembered, he recalled God's promise to Abraham. Where's that promise found? In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 17, how that God would give to Abraham seed, the land of Canaan, after 400 years of, in Egypt, of course, after 400 years in Egypt, God would settle them in the land of Canaan, and that God himself would take them out of Egypt, Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Here's words to his brothers, recalling the words of Moses, the words of, uh, of God to Abram. He says this, I'm about to die, but God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then placing his brothers under oath, he charged them in verse 25 of Genesis 50. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. What's the point? The point is this. 
Notwithstanding all the pleasures of Egypt, notwithstanding all the luxuries to which he had been exposed, notwithstanding all the honor, the accolades of his office as prime minister of Egypt, all those things, listen, did not in any way dampen his fervor nor diminish his faith in God. There are some people, my friends, who become wealthy, they step up in life, what happens? They forget God, not Joseph. Joseph, Eve, and again, here's what we said, what was most important to him at death? It was not things, it was not position, it was not prestige. It was his faith in God and his faith in the promise Promises of God. And so, with eyes firmly set on the land of promise, Joseph would not have his bones remain in Egypt. Why? Because as far as he was concerned, Egypt was no place for him to rest. He wanted God's land. He wanted God's city. And he says, look, take me up from here. Dig up my bones and take those bones to the land of of Canaan. Somebody puts it like this. He wanted his bones in the land of promise, thus taking his claim on the inheritance when Israel came into that land. In this way, notice what did Jake, what was true of him? He ordered his priorities right. True faith in God, beloved, will cause us to have a true perspective on life whereby we put God first. We seek first God's interest. Material things become what? Secondary. And how remarkable a faith he exhibited. Although, humanly speaking, there was no visible indication of that prophecy coming anytime true. Notice how assuredly Joseph spoke to his brothers with absolute confidence. Genesis 50 verses 24-25. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land and you shall carry up my bones from here. That was definitive. That was conclusive. He was well assured that it would happen. It reminds us of what the writer says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, doesn't it? Faith is what? The substance, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That was true, certainly true, of Joseph. Let me close then with some key lessons we can conclude from this message this morning. It's very simple, nothing big, nothing profound. Number one, what do we learn from this passage? Number one, faith affords confidence and assurance in the face of death. Faith affords confidence and assurance in the face of death. As I said earlier, just as we need faith to live well, so we need faith to die well. Let me say this. The only thing you see that will sustain us in those final years, those final moments of our life, are not things. It's not things that will sustain us. Not even our dearest relationship. Those things are important, yes. But ultimately, in our dying final days, it will be our faith in God that will sustain us and keep us stable. Secondly, we learn from this passage that faith takes at face value and with conviction The truths, the promises, the commands of God, acting on them even when there's presently no visible practical or logical indication as to how or when they're going to be fulfilled. 
That was Joseph. Acts with conviction on God's promises. Even when there's no visible indication, no logical indication as to how it's going to be fulfilled, true faith in God acts with conviction and certainty regarding God's promises. Here's a third lesson we take away this morning, and it is this. Faith resigns itself to the providence, to the purpose of God, irrespective of personal desires and preferences. Fourthly, faith in the promises and providence of God inspires prayer for children and our loved ones. You see this? Watch what we said earlier. You, you and I could pray for our, our children as much as we want. There's no guarantee that they're going to turn out right. No guarantee. But we should, we should, and we must. We can trust God, but here's the point. Sometimes in the providence of God, they turn out to be renegades. But certainly, certainly, we ought to be concerned enough to pray for them and seek God's blessing on them. That's what the patriarchs did. They prayed for their children. Do we pray for our children, our grandchildren? And then, fourth, and then fifthly and finally, true faith worships God even when it's inconvenient or inopportune. Jacob, a weak old man, 147 years Props himself upon the bed and is leaning on, on the staff. And what is he doing? Even as he's blessing his sons, he's praying for them. He's worshiping God. Oh, that God would give us grace that in our final hours, in our final years, in our final days, we would have faith and grace to die well. And that even now, by faith, we'd be able to live well to his honor. His honor. And glory for Christ's sake. Those who who do not know Christ as Savior, there is no assurance you have. Nothing to hold on at that crucial hour. That is why you need Christ. Come to him today and be saved.